good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. Uh, Over the past couple of weeks, we've kind of been dealing with maybe the theme of the strange in between. And and what I mean when I say that is we we, we preach a a, a beautiful gospel. I think maybe a simple way to say it is we, we preach a threefold salvation, meaning that we preach that you have been justified, meaning that God in his infinite grace sent his beloved son to pay the sin debt that you owed. And then not only to pay that sin debt, but to also clothe you with an infinite righteousness, a perfect righteousness. When Jesus, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount said, you must be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect, that's the righteousness that he provided for all those he justifies. And then there is this middle portion of our lives in Christ where we are being sanctified. Certainly in justification, we are declared righteous and holy. That is a declaration. It is a positional sanctification. And then there is this period of life that we live still having this mortal body, still being in the flesh to some degree, still having the remnants of the old man, and yet still having this strong desire to live unto God, to delight in Him, to rejoice in Him, to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to Him. And then we look forward to that future state of glorification. We even just sang of it a moment ago that we will be glorified. And in our glorification, we will dwell eternally with the Father. Sin will be completely removed. It will not have any presence among us any longer. And we will just dwell there, eternally delighting in the blessed triune God, paradise. And today what I want to do is essentially get us to the point where we're seeing this, understanding how we are to live in this strange, strange in-between and delighting in the state that we are in. Because brothers and sisters, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not a strange in-between. It is a normative and wicked in-between. And it is not even in between your birth and your death. It is literally from the moment that you breathe your first breath on this earth. You are dead in your trespasses and sins and you will remain there forevermore. Why? Because you are not under grace, you are under law. But praise be to God, our text this morning reminds us that for those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, the period in which we live today, if you be in him, is indeed a state of not being under law, but under grace. We have been brought out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have been, as it were, brought from the requirements of the law under the gracious reign of Christ, where all the law is fulfilled in him. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll begin our reading in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, and we'll make our way through verse 19. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 12, says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? 
Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, were, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Let's pray together. Father, we come with glory before us. Lord, we come knowing that we were justly condemned under the law. We come knowing that we were born under the dominion of sin. Lord, we come knowing that if it were not for the grace of Christ, if it was not for the Spirit who applied those blessed realities to us, then we would offer, we would continue to offer our members as slaves to impurity, that we would live lawless lives leading to more lawlessness. Oh, but Lord, we have glory before us. For we are no longer under law. Sin has lost its dominion and its power. It has been dominated by grace. And so, Father, I ask this day, would you help us to see what it means to be under the law? And then, Lord, would you help us to see the beauty of being under grace? And then, Lord, by your grace, would you help us to live accordingly? It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, we're going to begin this morning at verse 14. Now, last week, Blake led us into this text, and I want to kind of push us forward, lead us out of it. And just to pay close attention to what Romans 6.14 says, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And I think there are a couple of really important questions that we need to ask of this text. And the very first one is, what does it mean to be under law? Now, there is clearly a blessed reality that we are no longer under law, but under grace. But, but it seems as though what Paul is really assuming, or his presupposition as he walks into this text, is that every natural man is born under the law. And so what we need to understand, and I'm convinced that we often move past the, the, the perhaps the black cloth that the glorious diamond of the gospel is laid on, and we don't ever truly appreciate the beauty of a gospel that frees us from the curse of the law. And so what we need to do is we need to understand what it means to be under law so that we can rightly appreciate what it means to be under grace, to be brought from that state of condemnation into a state of reconciliation and ultimately redemption. And so what does it mean when he says, since you are not under law, what does it mean ultimately to be under the law? Well, I think it can be summed up in this very simple phrase. It means that, that we live under the constant banner of do this and live. When we understand what the law ultimately is laying over us, it is a simple command. And brothers and sisters, I will say this as well. It is not a farce. It is a true command. Do this and live. Now let's consider what that ultimately means for us. Do this and live. What are some examples of the do this that would ultimately lead us into life? Now, the very first one, I think that perhaps all of us would have in mind is the man, Adam. Adam was placed in the garden, this blessed, glorious garden. Earlier on in Genesis 2.9, it says that every tree that was a light to the eye and good for food was planted in the garden. Adam had his full and free reign of every single one of these, including the tree of life. And God essentially gave him one command. His command that was quite clear is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. Essentially, it was not only do this, but do not do this and live. 
Now it is right that immediately we should think, well, if Adam would not have eaten of that tree, would they have still remained in the garden? And it seems as though we must not call God a liar. It seems clear. The covenant of works is not a joke. That when God gave this command to Adam and he says, do not eat and you will live, that that was a true commandment, ultimately with true fruit and true reward. But the problem is that if we live on the ground of Adam, we live on the ground of fallible men. Adam was not perfect, brothers and sisters. Perfect means that you are uncreated. Perfect means that you are unchangeable. Perfect means that you have indeed a true perfection. But Adam did not possess this. He was created, which ultimately means that he was subject to change. And if he is subject to change, brothers and sisters, then Adam being given this command seems to go and eat. And ultimately this command, this law over him, do this and live, shatters over his head and says, death for you. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. And Adam died. Or what of another, Moses? God gives this great command on this mountain, shouting to the point where the people of God who are hearing the law read over them, spoken over them, says, we need a mediator. We can't hear him. It's so loud. And I'm afraid that if we continue to hear his voice over us, then we will perish. And they were not wrong. They needed a mediator the covenant of works in Moses' situation is don't trespass and live in perfect submission to the law that I have given and then you will live. But they actually came in already with defect because every single one of those who were covenanted with Moses were born under the man Adam. They had already sinned in their first father. And then God lays this law over them and says, hey, I see that you've trespassed in Adam. Here, I want you to see the continuation of this law. I want you to see the real righteous requirements of the perfectly holy God. And he says, do all of these things and live. And any sane human being that makes it through the first commandment realizes that not only have I fallen in Adam, I am condemned altogether because I can't make it through point one of the 10 commandments. I have failed in every capacity. And if I were to press on through them, I would see that not only have I failed in these commandments, but Romans would go on to say that I am an inventor of evil. I create new ways. This is what it means to be under law. The law of God is not lying to you when it says, do this and live. And this is the state that every natural human being is under. And so if I could give you maybe a couple of things that we really see this law does, let's consider for a moment. The law gives us a mutable ground. We have just recently sung the beauty of standing upon the cross of Christ, that immutable, unchangeable ground. But what I need you to understand is that if we are under law, then we stand always on a mutable ground. It's always subject to change. Why? Because the law of God is based upon man's perfect law keeping, which means that the ground that you are standing on, you craft ultimately for yourself. It says, do this and live. And we are always subject to change. And I don't know about you, but I never tend to change for the better lest the Spirit of God come anyway. I tend to always be going back and to and fro and always I'm feeling that if it's based upon me, the ground underneath my feet always seems to be sand moving about. The law of God says, yes, most certainly you can do this and live and it places you on the mutable ground of your own righteousness. And if I could point this out to you just for a moment, remember the state of your first father, Adam, that blessed and precious garden that he was placed in? He couldn't stay stable there. And do you think that even in your fallen state in Adam, you will go on to complete the law perfectly? 
No, you were under law. And under law, you were placed on mutable ground. And not only that, but it seems as though the law gives sin opportunity, as Romans 7, 11 says. Hear this for just a moment. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. It's almost as though this holy righteous thing that God has given us in his law, when I hear it, instantly it's weakened by the flesh. I take it and I, I hear the words that are spoken. I hear, do not touch that button. And all of a sudden, all I'm concerned with is that button. And I need to reach out. I need to touch it. I need to actually lay hold of it. Why? Because God has forbidden it. And I, in my natural state, am a, am a sinner in rebellion against God. I need something else. I need to be brought out from under the law. But not only that, as we reach out and touch that button, we are reminded that Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What does the law do? The law gives us the wages of our works. Consider for a moment, we've already spoken of just the 10 commandments. Let's just take the verse one, the first one. What is the penalty of idolatry? We treat this gently with kid gloves. The penalty of idolatry is death. And not just death, brothers and sisters. It's eternal death. It's separation from God. When we understand that the law of God will ultimately, and it has declared the wages of sin is death, we look at that and we say, oh man, this law is over me like a, like a boulder waiting to crush me underneath it. And all I hear is I hear the law read as lightning and thunder crashes. And I hear the wrath of God going out against me. Why? Because I'm under law. It's giving me the just wages of my sin, which is death. But not only that, it seems as though 1 Corinthians 15, 56 makes it really clear that the law gives sin power. Hear me, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. If you would consider for just a moment the courtroom. You would make your way into the courtroom and perhaps you would make some appeal of not guilty and then the law of God is read before them. In the court of heaven, the law of God reads, thou shalt make no false images, no graven images. And there you hear all of your trespasses, all of your times that you have committed idolatry. And all of a sudden you have no defense. There is nothing that you can present before him because the omniscient God knows that you have trespassed his law. He has codified it to such a degree that you know it in full. And he says, the law says, condemn him in his sin." The law gives sin power, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. It's quite clear. And here's what I want us to understand too, as we read through all of this, that there is no one exempt from being underneath the law. I wanna read this, this is from Romans chapter three. We've walked through this already, but I want to recite it to you. Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, some people would take this and say, oh, well, that's speaking specifically of the Jews. But if we go back into Deuteronomy, we see that the law of God being, being laid out over the people is not just for the ones that are there, but for the ones who are not and for all time. And here you look at this and it talks about that, the, that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And here's how explicit this actually is. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Who is underneath this law? Brothers and sisters, every human being born is born underneath this law with the command, do this and live. That is the natural state. And if you could go back to that courtroom for just a moment, I think Romans 3.19 really does give us the clear 
the clear picture that we would see there. That last phrase in Romans 3, 19, so that every mouth may be stopped. Who will on that day stand before God and give an excuse? Brothers and sisters, when the law of God is read over them, they see their wages and God in his infinite justice would give them just that. Every mouth will be silent before him because they are all under law and not under grace. And to make this really clear, Paul later says in 2 Corinthians 3, 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that being under the law is essentially being under the ministry of condemnation. The primary purpose, brothers and sisters of the law, is to show you that you are indeed a sinner and that you are indeed in need of a mediator. May we all say with the Israelites, as the law of God is read over them, we need someone to stand in the gap. I think of that picture in Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, Christians making his way to the wicked gate, ultimately to enter into that blessed salvation that Christ has provided. And he makes a wrong turn and he makes his way up Mount Sinai. And as he makes his way up Mount Sinai, there's lightning and there is thunder and there is this great sense of fear and dread in him. And brothers and sisters, I think Bunyan perhaps did it better than anyone else because I read that and all I can think is if I be under the law, then I have nothing but fear because fear certainly has to do with judgment and the law is very clear about its judgments. Now, one thing that we must be careful to say is Paul will later say in Romans chapter seven, we must say that the law is good and holy. Brothers and sisters, there is not fault in the law of God. There is fault in us. When we look at the law of God so often, even as Paul, I mean, Paul is just running us through the law and showing us our own failures and our own faults within it. Unless someone reached the end of it and saying, ah, oh, the law is wicked and therefore bring a charge against the righteous God of infinite glory and holiness. That is most certainly not what we see. The reason that we look back on Mount Sinai and see its thunderings and see its threatenings is not because there is any problem with Mount Sinai or the law of God. The problem is with us. We have rebelled and sinned against the holy God because really, if we want to understand what it means to be under the law of God, it ultimately means that we are under the dominion of sin. It is flourishing within us and the law of God shouts over that dominion of sin, kill him. But the law is good and holy and just. But praise be to God, brothers and sisters, we are not like those under the law. And I really want us to hear this because if we can read through and we can understand what it means to be under the law, then perhaps it is that we will taste all the sweeter of what it means to be under grace. Because brothers and sisters, we as those who have been brought out from under the law and into and under grace, we don't look back at Mount Sinai and see its threatenings. We don't look back at Mount Sinai and see it lightning and, and wondering and being concerned that this great stone will crush us. Instead, we look back and we say, I know the one who fulfilled that. I know the one who completely kept that. There is no more threatenings there. As a matter of fact, it seems as though because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, that is a sweet mountain that we might often come to. 
Its threatenings have been removed because Jesus has conquered the threatenings. He has paid the debt for every trespass I have committed against the law. How am I ultimately brought from under law and then into grace? It is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no other means from being free from all of the just threatenings of God than fleeing to God the Son. When you find yourself in him, then we can look back at the law of God and say, he's righteous, he's just, he's good, and I'm not but he has clothed me with a blessed righteousness. And then we must look at what it means to be under grace. What does it mean then to be under grace? It means that we are always under the banner of done, now live. It is a dramatic distinction. We do not live clambering about so that we might do something that God would grant us life. We live in the life that he provided. Jesus Christ accomplished all that was necessary. And then he says, live, Live in all the love that I have provided. Live under grace. You read passages like John 10 and you think, what does it mean to have life and life more abundantly? It's not talking about riches. It's talking about glory and grace. We live under this blessed state of grace. It is done and now we are called to live. And I think two examples that we must see in regard to the covenant of grace. We saw in the old Adam and Moses and we see that we live under that exact same banner if we be under the law. But if we be under grace, there is a dramatic shift. What are the examples? I think one must be in the Lord's table where the Adamic covenant says, don't eat and live. The covenant of grace says, eat and live. Why do you get to come to the table? Because Jesus bids you come. And since Jesus bids you come, you come and you taste. Brothers and sisters, you didn't merit one thing on that table. It's all of Christ. You drink that cup, that sweet cup, it's because he drank the bitter one. You eat that bread, it nourishes your body. It's because he was broken for you. That's the covenant of grace. And every time we come to the table and we drink and we eat, we taste it and we rejoice. Or what about the Mosaic covenant where the Mosaic covenant bars trespassers. It says, do not touch this mountain lest you die. With God, the covenant of grace baptizes them into fellowship with God. You cannot flee from me. You've been brought near with hearts full of assurance and with confidence. Why? Because Christ is willing. Why are you baptized into his name, brothers and sisters? It's because Christ was able to say, but not only was he able, he willfully said, lay their sins upon me. Let them identify with me. Let them be buried with me. Let them be raised with me. Let them live with me. That is the covenant of grace. When he says, it's done, now live, this is ultimately what we mean. We mean that these beautiful examples that we have in the table and the beautiful examples that we have in baptism are not just pseudo sacraments, that they are glorious, that they convey wondrous truth to us. They convey to us that we are in the covenant of grace. We are no longer under law. Now, what is it that this covenant of grace actually does for us? Grace places us on the immutable ground of Christ. He is not like Adam, brothers and sisters. He is not like Adam. In a seeming way, certainly, but Adam is a shadowy form. And Christ is the substance. Christ is the one who has laid out a ground that cannot be shaken. When we say we stand upon the cross of Christ, we are not just saying some Christianism. We're saying that we stand upon an immutable, unchangeable ground that cannot be shaken. It will not give way. It has been assaulted for years and still it stands. We stand upon the immutable ground of Jesus Christ. Not a work that is being done, but a work that is done. When Jesus Christ declared it is finished, when he was raised on the third day, when he lives ever present now mediating for us, we know this truth. The work of Christ is finished. And all he is doing in his mediation is saying, I finished the work. I finished the work. 
Not only does it place us on immutable ground, it gives us the wages of Christ's work. Go back down just a bit into verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Brothers and sisters, this is the just penalty for our perversion, as Romans 1 would say. The wages of sin is death. The law would look at it and say, they've done all of these things. Here's what they've merited. And then the reign of grace comes, ultimately being brought from under the law, under the reign of grace. And now we have this second phrase, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot have it any other way. When you are under the reign of grace, essentially what you are saying, what the gospel teaches us is that I am under the man Christ Jesus. I am in him. The life that I have flows from him. I do not receive the wages that I earn because Romans 2 told me that if I receive the wages that I earn, that it's tribulation and distress, wrath and fury. Jesus Christ experienced tribulation and distress, wrath and fury so that we could experience eternal life and peace. We receive his wages. It is a glorious and strange exchange, but one we must always be rejoicing in. And then the glory of the covenant of grace is that it woos every soul under it to Christ. Where the law shouts threatenings. When the law says, touch this mountain lest you die, for you have no right to stand here. Grace says, come to me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. What we have in the glorious gospel of Christ is a constant wooing, come to me. It reminds me of that great Old Testament story of Hosea and Gomer, as I am often making my way, fleeing from him, as there's always in the midst of this strange in-between, some sin left in me, and I feel as though I still curse him. He does not strike me, lest it be with a disciplining hand, but instead it seems as though he is far more accustomed to wooing He is far more accustomed to showing me the glory of the gospel. He's far more accustomed to say, see the grace, see the love, see the mercy, see the joy that's in me. And he bids me come back to him. Because the gospel of grace, the covenant of grace does not strike for it has already struck Christ. And now it woos me to come. And then grace does something rather magnificent, something that the law could not do. Grace opens every mouth in praise to Christ. In our strategy early on when we planted, one of the things that we spoke of in missions is the purpose of missions is not just to see sinners saved. And brothers and sisters, it is to see sinners saved. But it's so that that tongue that, is, that, that deserves, that, that tongue will sing loudly the praises of Christ because he is worthy. He is worthy of worship and praise and honor. And the reality is that every soul who's brought under the law and brought under grace is a soul that sings loudly the praises of Jesus. It must, you could not bid it stop. Why? Because it has seen and it has heard and it knows that even their minds cannot perceive all that God has prepared for them. It is a tongue that must sing. It is a tongue that, dare I say, will often shout And lastly, grace destroys the dominion of sin by applying Christ's work. We have employed a word here, and I love this word. It's the word obliterate. Brothers and sisters, sin's dominion has ultimately been dominated by grace. It has been conquered. It has been obliterated. It has no right to rule and to reign any longer for Christ has conquered it completely. He has brought you out from under law. Should the law come and accuse you, Christ would say, there seems to be no ground for accusation because Christ has conquered it. 
Now, two simple ways that we can see this. How can we see? Because really what we need to do is get to verse 15, but I got very excited in verse 14. So we're gonna go a little bit faster now. So when we look at this, what are, how can we understand, how can we see sin's lack of dominion? Because if you're living where I am, meaning you're in between justification and glorification, you still feel it. You still feel its pull. And not only do you feel its pull, you feel even the guilt of it. But brothers and sisters, when we understand the gospel, we must know that sin's dominion has ultimately been conquered. And so I think really what Paul is trying to do is get us to the point where we see sin ultimately defeated so that when we feel it here, we say, you are conquered. You've been crushed in Christ and I am free. And the two simple ways that we see this is first, in the final judgment. Where is my sin in the final judgment, brothers and sisters? When you stand before God and you give an account, should the law, should the world, should the flesh, should the devil come and bring accusation against you, it would find no grounds. There would never be reason to cast you out. It seems as though what the law of God has actually done has being fulfilled in Christ and then given to us, that the law of God would actually say, you must let him in. You must let him in because he's clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and there be no sin on him. He must enter. The only just reward for righteousness is paradise. And that's ultimately what we see when we're brought under the covenant of grace. We see in the final judgment, there is certainly no accusation that can be brought. And I think perhaps most sweetly that in life eternal, meaning after this body is laid in the ground and then raised at the day of the Lord, there will never be sin in me anymore. We sing that song, oh, that day when free from sinning. Do you believe that? Does that cause your heart to soar? That on that day, free from sinning, or is it perhaps so innate within us? Perhaps it is that we still have love for it, that we sing that half-heartedly. Brothers and sisters, if we understand the true wickedness of sin, then the reality that we will live eternally without its presence will be paradise in the greatest sense, not only because we be free from sinning, because we see his face. This is the glory of the gospel of grace. Sin has no dominion over you. When you be raised on the last day, it will not be present in you. At judgment, no accusation can be made. And throughout eternity, you will worship Christ free from sinning. No selfishness, no self-glory, no self-righteousness. You come and you come rightly because all that is wrong has been conquered. We have been brought under the covenant of grace. Now, a strange question is then asked. And I do mean it's a strange question. If you understand all of this, if you are captured by its beauty, this does fall into a strange question. Verse 15 says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And you'll notice that this is almost an exact quote, just with some minor changes from verse one. What shall we say then in verse one? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How do we get to this question in light of being brought out from under the dominion of the law and brought under the dominion of grace, the reign of grace. I think there's two reasons. The first is this, because the grace of Christ is so radical that should you continue to sin after you have been freed from the dominion of sin, the reign of grace would continue to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I've been brought out from under the reign of the law and I've been brought under grace, and I continue in my sin. Brothers and sisters, and I know that each and every one of us taste this. You taste it, you feel that sin still present. And what Paul is ultimately trying to communicate to us and doing a fantastic job at that is looking at you and saying, the grace of Christ is always sufficient. 
It is always sufficient. Should you go past your conversion and continue to sin, there is still more grace in Christ. It is a well that never runs dry. And we should rejoice in this and we should preach it and we should be glad every time that we get to say that there is always more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. We should always be glad to proclaim this and to comfort the sinner amidst their after, after being converted that there's still more grace in Christ. You cannot ruin what he has provided because it's not about your works, it's about his grace. And then there is the fool. And I do not mean to be crass, but I can speak of him in no other way but by calling him a fool. The first is because, oh, the grace of Christ is so magnificent that should we continue it to sin, there would still be enough grace left in Christ to save us. And praise be to God for that. But there is this second man, this foolish man that would say, because some wicked men see freedom from the law as freedom to sin. That is not at all what's being said. As a matter of fact, the polar opposite is being stated. You have never been free to not sin until God in his infinite grace made you alive in Christ. Up until that point, everything that you did was sin. You exhaled vitriol and hatred toward God because you would not give him praise, the glory and honor that was due his name. That's what we've done before we've been brought under grace. And now that we're brought under grace, you wanna go back to that? Like, that's what you want? We have all the loveliness and all the beauty of the covenant of grace. And you're like, I think I'll go back to my sinning. Brothers and sisters, this is not the cry of the convert. This is the cry of the fraud who says, I know Christ, I love Christ. Let me go on sinning. No one who loves Jesus says, I'll go on sinning. Let's consider what they would say, perhaps. They would say, perhaps, if I'm free from the law, can it even be called sin? Well, it's gonna be obliterated. It's, it's not there. So it's like, it's not even real anymore. Brothers and sisters, go back a chapter and see that death reigned from Adam to Moses where there was no law. Sin was still present and it was called sin. It is rebellion against God. It is not just the codified law. When you sin, you rebel against the God of glory. It is his being, it is his essence, it is his holiness. So you wanna go back to that? No, that doesn't work. You can't say that I'm free from the law so I can go on sinning because it's no longer called sin. Secondly, perhaps it is that some would say, Christ has freed me from sin's consequence, so there is no penalty. So why not sin all the more? I've met people like this. And then 1 John comes in with a fatal blow to this argument. And it says this, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, that is converted, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Can you go on sinning because you are not under law but under grace? Well, the grace of Christ is sufficient for that, but the converted will will never gladly go. It will never gladly go because if we've been born of God, we love righteousness, we love Christ. And it's very clear, John earlier states in his gospel that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. The first thing born in an individual when they are converted is love of God and then they obey. Or perhaps it is that they would say, I can do as I please because I'm not under the law. You know what? I'll give you that one. You can do as you please because you are not under the law. But if you be brought from out, out from under the burden, the curse of the law, then everything that you desire has been changed. 
you no longer love those wicked things. You have been dramatically and radically altered. I think of what the psalmist would say, Lord, give me the desires of my heart. The beauty of being brought from under the law and brought under grace is that he has radically changed everything that I love. I no longer love sin, that thing that he was nailed to a tree for. I love righteousness. I love to obey. I love to delight. I love to offer myself up to Christ as the one who is worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor. We must be emphatic and proclaim the reign of grace never gives birth to licentious living. It gives birth to loving obedience. Now, what's the corrective thought? Because just like in Romans 6, there is a corrective thought of being united with Christ here. There is another corrective thought. So what is the correction? How is it that we can fix this broken man's accusation? And at the exact same time, delight in the fact that there's always a sufficient amount of grace in Christ. Let's go on in verse 16. It says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Interestingly enough, slavery is the corrective thought. Let's go back to union with Christ. When we are united with Christ, we are, made, we, we, we are identified with him. We receive his righteousness. He has taken our wages. And now that all of this has been accomplished, now that we have been brought from under the law and brought under grace, all that should be our natural response is, I, I want to obey and delight in Jesus all my days. I want to offer myself up to slavery. I would argue that this is the most natural and I would even say the most normative reaction to being born again is that you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I'm yours. I'm yours. I was bought at a price and I'm glad to submit myself to you. And here we see, as Matthew Henry says, all the children of men are either the servants of God or the servants of sin. These are, these are the two families. Now, if we would know to which of these families we belong, we must inquire to which of these masters we yield obedience. You wanna know who you submit yourself to? You wanna know who you're a slave to? You wanna know what it means to, to, to follow Jesus? The question is rather simple. Who do you obey? I mean, look at it. It's, 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 it's astonishingly clear. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, one camp, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness, the other? And I think it's perhaps a great moment for us to stop and ask ourselves, who then do you obey? Who then do you obey? The two camps are quite clear. You can be under law and thus under the dominion of sin, or you can be under Christ and ultimately under his reign of grace. But you will present your members, you will present yourselves as slaves to one or the other. And that does lead us to ask the question, if I can maybe ask a couple of probing questions, do you obey sin? And let me clarify this. It's not, do you sin, dear saints? I know you sin. I know I sin. I know that I still have lack of affections, that I don't obey with perfection. And that's why we'll eventually find ourselves in Romans 7, Paul debating and, and wrestling with this reality. The question is not, do you sin? The question is, do you obey sin? Do you submit yourself to it? And I think a couple of easy ways for us to ask this is, are you happy to obey its passions? Are you happy to obey its passions? Are you happy to go with sin wherever it would lead you? Are you glad to live in licentiousness? Are you glad to rebel against the one who would bring you out from under the law and under grace? Does that thrill your soul? 
would you be content with carrying your sin to heaven? This is one of the most probing questions, I think, for myself. You know, when we deal with the inner man, when we deal with our own faults and failures, and even if I deal with the self-examination of myself, brothers and sisters, sin has so corrupted the natural man that I can't fathom life without it. But praise be to God, he will provide it. But if I am thrilled, if I rejoice at the idea of heaven with my sin present, brothers and sisters, you might not be brothers and sisters. Do you obey sin? And the other one, oddly phrased perhaps, is do you obey obedience? I want you to notice what the text says. So do you, the one who you obey is the one whom you present yourself as slaves to. And then it goes on, sin which leads to death, which by the way is the only outcome of sin. There is no other. Or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So the simple question is, do you obey obedience? Now you're thinking, like I was, what does this mean? Well, thankfully, Paul clarified this at the very beginning of his letter. Look at Romans 1, verse 5. Because obedience, I mean, it's such a full word. I mean, it could be obedience to the law. It could mean obedience to my parents. It could mean so many different things. But, but what does it actually mean? What is it, what is it saying to us when it says that we obey obedience? Well, Paul has introduced his letter clarifying this remark in verse 5. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. You know, interestingly enough, being under grace, the original, the, the, the real only command is believe on Christ. What does it mean to obey obedience? It means that in the, in the case of Romans 1.5, that we offer ourselves, we obey in regard to faith. Internally, I think the easiest way to, to, to summarize this is, are we constant in our dependence on Jesus Christ for salvation and life? What does it mean to obey obedience? It's not offering our members to sin. Instead, it's looking at Christ and saying, I know that I live in a strange in-between. I know that there's still faults and failure in me. I know that I have been justified. But even amidst this odd period of time where there's still this wrestling match between the flesh and the spirit, I lay myself before you. I depend on you. I live in the obedience of faith. I say Christ is sufficient for my justification. Christ is sufficient for my sanctification. And Christ is sufficient for my glorification. I live in obedience in faith, believing and casting myself on Christ, knowing that he is always and eternally sufficient. And then and only then, brothers and sisters, will you obey? You will not obey unless you believe. Consider for a moment, I mean, look at, look at what this actually says. I turned the page, sorry. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, listen to the language here, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You will have no righteousness apart from the obedience of faith. You believe on Christ and he declares you righteous. He clothes you with that glorious garment of his works. And then from that flows obedience. It flows righteousness, not only in the forensic sense, but in the fruit sense. We will give birth to good works. That's what it means to be a slave of Christ. And so how is it that we wait and that we war in this strange in-between? There are a couple of great errors, I think. Your issue isn't with the law. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Your issue isn't with the law. It's satisfied. Your issue isn't with sin because Jesus has already conquered its dominion. 
I think our biggest issue in the midst of living in the strange in between is are we dependent on and adoring Jesus? If we do those two things, then all we are doing is looking at the law and saying, fulfilled. We're looking at sin and we're saying, I'm dead to you. And we look at Christ and we say, you are all in all. What does it mean? How do we wage war amidst this strange in between? We look to depend and adore our Jesus. And then perhaps it is that you find yourself in some offense at the word slave. I can think of absolutely no reason to look into the scriptures and see being slave, being a slave of Christ is any offense. As a matter of fact, the slavery that we have to Christ is our greatest boast. Isn't it interesting that the apostle Paul opens the majority of his letters with, I am a slave to Christ. You would think he would lead with apostle. I mean, literally, I'm writing to you as an apostle. That's not how he opens them. He opens them as a slave. And oh, that we would taste bondage to Christ as Paul did. Bondage to Jesus is bondage to obedience and righteousness and love and joy and life and beauty and eternity and pleasures forevermore. And if we were like Paul, when we thought of these things, when we realized that bondage to Christ is bondage to eternal joy, pleasures forevermore, then we would go to him and say, bind me not in part, but bind me in whole. Take me all for you. I want to be bound to you forevermore. I am your glad and happy slave. I remember my former master. He, his wages were hard and he gave me no straw for the bricks that I would make. It was an impossible task. And here I stand looking at you, hearing the words done and I live. Let's pray together.